I think there's this sort of narrow range of punk rock that sort of rational response to things, maybe the difference between The Clash and The Sex Pistols or some such, where I think that Seneca would be fully on board with that. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of a knowledgeable life, a happy life. Today we're talking about, Rudy, this is, Rudy, this is you, all right? Like, you take this one. <laughs> this uh, I, this I, episode I is your wheelhouse. It is an absolute honor to take this one. <laughs> Today we are talking about the philosophy of punk rock. We get into so many things, the history of punk rock, what it means to be a sellout. Would Seneca be a punk rocker? I mean, who wouldn't want to have these questions answered? Those questions and many, many more are answered on this episode. And I'm so happy to have our guests back on. And I'm so happy that they wrote this book. This is a book filled with awesome essays on every single topic of punk rock and philosophy that you can think of. There's essays in this book that even anger me. And as we discussed on this episode, there was one particular essay that I found very humorous because I took such offense to it. Mm -hmm. Don't want to give away any details, but it has to do with Sting. Sting. Can you believe that? Sting. Yes, we actually talk about Sting on this episode. We talk about anger and punk rock. What is righteous anger? What is reasonable anger? What is unreasonable anger? And we really get into the details here. I think... Every music fan out there will love this episode. Yeah. Our guests are philosophy professors, editors of this wonderful collection, Punk Rock and Philosophy. It's Josh Heater and Richard Green, returning guests, because we did The Godfather with them, and we've had Richard on for his book on spoilers. Love this stuff on pop culture. I like what they're putting out there because they are um, really showing one of the wonderful things about philosophy is the way in which it just makes you more thoughtful about the things that you already enjoy and why do you enjoy them so i know nothing about punk rock but this was a fabulous episode it was it's just lovely to see you happy about all this it's just lovely to see yeah well i mean i this book this book and this episode really really made me think again about my love affair with punk rock and why the tender young age of 46 i still proudly call myself a punk rocker i talk about how i finally have come to terms with why I am a punk rocker, and I and I discuss a specific quote that I recently read from the great Penelope Spheris, the director of the decline of Western civilization, as well as Fast Times Ridgemont Highs and, and many other films. We get into it in this episode, and I think people may appreciate me and punk rock a little bit more after listening to this episode. I'm very excited. I can't wait for people to give some feedback on this one. And this one. You know what we're calling this one, right? What the philosophy of punk rock. The philosophy period. of punk rock, period. Period, period. That's it. It is a beautiful <laughs> title. You know, it's not quite the title of the book, but it is what we explore on this episode. Okay. I'm just going to say, I think Josh and Rich, you might be single-handedly responsible for Rudy's interest in philosophy because I have been doing this podcast with him for four years now and nothing has thrilled him more than your work with The Godfather and now we've got punk rock. Oh, nice. I just know the Ramones and from what I'm gathering from the collection of essays is that if I have heard of that song, then chances are it's no longer really punk rock anymore. <laughs> <laughs> By the time I hear it, it's lost its edge. 
And unless it's the Ramones, the Ramones are like gods in the punk rock world. So. Oh, okay. All right. I'm going to take that as a compliment then that I know them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's probably a reason why you have heard of them. And we will get into that in, in our second question that relates specifically to history. Because I, I do think that there is this obsession, if you will, with history. But let's start from the beginning, which is thanking <laughs> yes. Rich and Josh for coming onto our show again and spending time with us and oh, sending us wonderful. more of their excellent excellent work uh like if you guys just keep pumping out stuff for the rest of your life you will have a fanboy and a promoter in me so let me just ask after thanking you for joining us why did you have this beautiful book one of the most beautiful books ever written in the history of time <laughs> which is very it's very simple title punk rock and philosophy why was this book put together what are its roots i gotta say at this point i'm sort of disinclined to talk about the book i think anything we say will tarnish what you've just said about it leave leave it hanging there that's great yeah. um josh you, you got to answer this because this was your idea and it, and it was a great one yeah sure so um they've been pumping out these popular culture and philosophy books since about the turn of the century about about the year 2000 and about the year 2010, 2011, I started thinking, you know, they've done a lot of these books, but they've never done a book on punk. There was at the time, there's a punk, uh, there's a book on hip hop, hip hop and philosophy that was really good. And that makes a lot of sense to do that. And there was a book on the blues and philosophy that made a lot of sense, but nobody had done a punk book. And so I put together an idea and I shipped it out to as many publishers that I thought were had a reasonable chance of saying yes. Nobody was super interested. Uh, I even went as far as like, I, you know, I was very naive at the time. I thought, you know, maybe if I get somebody like super famous to uh, agree to do the forward, then that will help. And I found emails for a bunch of people and I actually got some nice responses, but all declines. And so I kind of put it away for years and years. That, again, that was about like 2010, 2011. And then, you know, somewhere around like spring of 2021, Richard and I were just talking and he mentioned something about a punk band and we never really talked about punk music before. And I just said, you know, back in the day, I had this one of these books that I was trying to get done. Maybe we should t get, take another shot at it. And Richard said, yeah, that's a good idea. And he took it to the people at Karis and uh, yeah, we got the green light and it has been a joy to work on. We both, Richard and I are fans of punk and obviously we're band, uh, fans of philosophy and we're fans of combining those two things that we love and things that we like to think carefully about. We really enjoy the process and we're happy with how the book turned out. Well, and the book starts off with something very, very relevant. And it talks about the legend, if you will, the legend of, of where punk rock started. Its first sentence is beautiful. Punk rock was invented on August 16th, 1974, when four disaffected young men from Queens, New York, took the stage at the now infamous CBGB bar and belted out a new furious brand of rock and roll the world wasn't quite ready for. On that night, the band in question, the Ramones, began a movement of not only music, but of fashion and attitude previously unseen in civilized society. <laughs> the, basically, it goes on to say, yeah, right. No, that isn't actually what happened. There is no date that punk rock started. Now, that sentence is very interesting for a lot of reasons because it has a date. It has a place. It also talks about disaffected young men, which I think is 
very relevant for our discussion. But to me, what that speaks to as a writer and a student of punk rock himself, I'm actually writing my own essay uh, separately about where I think punk rock started. And that just makes me think like, why does it matter? Why is history so important to punk rockers? It's like everybody wants to find the first punk rock performance this. And this is kind of relevant in that hip hop just celebrated its 50 year anniversary and the Grammys are doing something big. And that's great. So there you go. 50 years of hip hop. But in punk rock, we really can't point to a date. But why is history so important to punk rock? Do you guys have an, do you guys have an answer to that by chance? Yeah, I've got a couple of thoughts on it. Um, Josh may want to add something or have a different take. A lot of the papers in the collection talk about punk and credibility, punk and authenticity. And several of the papers point out that in punk rock, there's an inordinate amount of gatekeeping going on. And there are always has been. Who's a real punk? Who's, who's authentic? Who's a poser? And so forth. So I think part of the, the importance of the origin story is people gain this sort of status as being legitimate by being there in the beginnings of it. In Jesse Prince's paper, he's got a great line that I, I won't quote, but paraphrase where he says something like, my definition of a poser is anybody who got into punk after I did. This seems to have been going on since the mid-1970s. For you know, whatever reason, being legit, being credible, being a real punk is significant. And I think that a lot of the times people make the case for their legitimacy by being at these seminal events. It doesn't have to be the first show, but you know, it could be there in the early days. I bought, you know, the first Ramones album within five months of it coming out. Therefore, I've always liked it. You know, that sort of thing. I think part of why authenticity is so important, as well as the history, uh, you know, is it, as it's interconnected with the history, is I think so much of punk rock was, especially in the early parts, like the 70s on, on into the 80s, was kind of a reaction to a certain direction that a lot of rock and roll was going. It was very big. It was very showy. You had the, you know, five-minute guitar solos you had the bands dressing up in flamboyant gear and you know as i've gotten older i can enjoy that stuff all that stuff is fun as well but there's something arguably inauthentic about it right we're just sort of making a big show this isn't who we really are and punk rock being a response to that is is let's be authentic let's be our actual selves but to richard's point like a lot of things that start with laudable praiseworthy origins you know it gets away from us whether it be you know we want to promote social justice or anything, if you're not careful or thoughtful about it, you start to become, like you said, a gatekeeper, or you start to become something that uh, you yourself claim to hate because you're not thoughtful about this thing that you're trying to foster or care for, authenticity, and you start to become just like a bully and saying, okay, you're not a part of the club. It's really interesting, right? Because I wanted to point out how in that very first sentence, they referred to the original Ramones as disaffected young men. These were people that maybe wanted to, maybe wanted to be a part of society, maybe wanted to be a part of the cool kids, but they couldn't quite get there. And so they started this movement and, you know, punk rock is this movement of the disaffected, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be, it really should be, right? Like, oh, hey, everyone, come one, come all, we accept you all. But it's not. It really isn't. Like, I struggle with punk rock in that what I think is the, one of the most beautiful things about punk rock, and I finally figured out very recently, 
why I consider myself a lifelong punk rocker. And it was the great director of the decline of Western civilization, Penelope mm. Spheris. I read a quote from her recently. And she said, and she was speaking about some crazy um, true crime case. And she was talking about this individual. And, and I pointed out this, this, this quote. Plus, you know, if you're really a punk, you're not going to be judgmental about somebody. You're just going to let them be who they are. And I, and I was fawning over this line. But what you just said, Josh and, and Rich, is like gatekeeping is a huge part of punk rock. Like we don't accept posers, right? We don't accept sellouts. We want to be disaffected, right? Like, is that the internal struggle of punk rock is that we have to keep it authentic. And so we need to keep posers out or is that it's really it's undoing in that we're just as bad as all of these other movements of people and passing judgment. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's one of the significant internal issues with punk rock. Maybe, maybe not the internal issue. But yeah, I, there, there's some value to being protective of the movement. Okay. Right. So okay. you think of movements that, you know, start out really good and go bad quite rapidly or get away from whatever it is the original goals are. And in fact, actually, I think that's pretty true of punk rock. You know, at least in England in the early days, it, it was, you know, kind of a gay activist movement that fairly rapidly got, you know, co-opted by Nazis and, and whatnot. You know, there's there's something about keeping the posers out and keeping it authentic that's good. A punk sort of managed to stay authentic in some ways a lot longer than, say, rock and roll, which 10 years after um, Chuck Berry started doing his thing, it sounded more like Led Zeppelin than, you know, Bo Diddley. You know, I was I'm thinking of like, um, do you remember the television series Freaks and Geeks? Yes. Oh, yeah. It was the one season, right? That one season show. A lot of famous people came out of that show. Yeah, brilliant season. So like in the penultimate episode, James Franco's character, Daniel, meets this girl, I think at like a gas station or a convenience store, and she's a punk. He wants to be with her, and he says, well, I'm a punk too, and she's great. You know, come to the show Friday. So he puts a lot of goop in his hair and puts glitter all over his face and just looks like a, you know, complete idiot. And then the juxtaposition is Ken, Seth Rogen's character, is there in the mosh pit like he's been called home to the mothership that he didn't even know existed. Without the that sort of, I guess, gatekeeping going on, that kind of movement could easily turn into a bunch of Daniel Desarios, just a big kind of ugly fashion show. And for a lot of people, punk was a, a significant movement. And for plenty of people, it wasn't, right? I mean, there's folks that were just having fun or thought it was cool. But to those that felt like maybe some social change might come about or that, you know, there's some sort of meaning to it, you want to be sort of guarded to make sure that it doesn't turn into something kind of ridiculous. Would you say that the height of ridiculousness is uh, Sugar Ray's fly? Not to pick on Sugar Ray, <laughs> but that was, that was in a lot of essays. I mean, they really, it was like, that was a seminal moment in punk rock. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but what are your thoughts about that question? Uh, punk rock's Nickelback. Um. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to talk about it. Like, we're, we're, we've got to talk. We have to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Josh, you want to? Yeah, I don't know if I could pinpoint. I mean, because punk has had so many, like, highs and lows, right? That arguably that, what you're describing is happens in, like, the third wave of punk rock. And yes. so there were probably definitely... Uh, ridiculous things that came before that all this discussion is sort of making me just sort of question like this phenomenon that we're talking about 
this sort of counterculture thing starts and it is formed around things that are praiseworthy or, or good things like authenticity, it kind of makes me just sort of think that this is probably the way that it goes in general for countercultural movements, right? So you have something in the culture that people don't like, and then people start rebelling against that. And then those people start to recognize one another and they sort of form a community, a genre around that. But then that naturally leads to that community sort of establishing norms and hierarchies themselves. And it's just a couple more steps until you have something that needs to be rebelled against. Again, because, you know, people start gatekeeping and people start dictating what counts as a part of the counterculture or not. And so this is not, this is definitely important for punk, but I'm, I wonder if it's unique to it. Well, that's something, if, if you don't mind if I jump in, that I think it was one of the essays, was the author's name Tiffany Montoya. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to make sure I gave her credit for her essay on class consciousness. And that's something that I thought was really fascinating. This idea of uh, Marx and Engels and talking about the alienation of the worker and that punk rock is really expressing that. And that seems to be what this conundrum is, is that that historical reality or of a capitalistic system where there are the haves and have nots that one's labor has to do with making money for somebody else and you're just completely... Um, well, I guess the word is alienated. So it's as a result of that, that this phenomenon is of punk rock is expressing that sentiment that if we didn't have a society like that, could punk rock really <laughs> exist? It's almost as though the economic conditions of the haves and the have nots has to be there for somebody to counter it. And then since music's viability has a very economic reality, the moment that that money gets popular and can be sold, then you've got the problem of it's no longer, you're on the other side of the haves and the have-nots. Like that's a really interesting conundrum to me. Did I make sense yeah, another, or no? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Another thing from the Prince chapter that Richard mentioned is, uh, he sort of pointed out, like, look, the, when you think about it, the, the motivation behind the gatekeeping is kind of understandable because when things get um, culturally appropriated, if you want to use that term, you know, that first of all, that feels like theft. And, you know, that's something you want to guard against. And the second thing is, like, if everybody starts to do it in a kind of a way that's not really meaningful, well, then this thing that you love, whether it be punk or anything else, gets diluted. And so it's kind of understandable that people are on guard for various types of reasons. Um, that doesn't make it any less troublesome this sort of overindulgence in that type of a thing but it's it's understandable can punk rock be happy it can oh it's can happy oh yeah no brilliant rock? brilliant question okay, uh, okay i'd love to hear rich and, and josh's answers to that yeah you yeah, know the, the the ramones said it we're a happy family me mom and dad um <laughs> th there might have been some irony in there yeah i i think that there's different strands of punk rock and so you know there's some sex pistols angry, upset at the government, upset at the queen, upset at the conditions sort of thing. And, and that stuff doesn't lend itself to a kind of happiness. Um, but there was a real fun segment of punk rock, even with people that would describe themselves as angry or disaffected. You know, you think of like Jello Biafra, you know, in the yep. early days of the Dead Kennys. Just so much fun to watch. And he was having a ball. Some of that seems very happy. The Ramones seemed, at least some of them, very happy. Johnny Ramone never looked happy, the, the guitarist. But yeah, I, I think that there's it's a big tent in that respect. Yeah, my thoughts are on it. And this, this is related to my question about anger and anger being such an important component to punk rock. It's almost like an existential question. Gee, philosophy and punk rock. Can you be angry 
and happy? I think that the answer is yes. I think yeah. you absolutely can be angry and happy. It's all about like, well, what are you angry about? Are you angry about injustice? Are you angry that you spilt your ice cream? Are you angry that someone cut you off in your car? Like, what's the essence of your anger? And I do think that punk rock allows you to feel that anger. And I know, you know, there's different branches of punk rock. If, you, if you're really focusing on political punk rock, Dead Kennedys, Bad Brains, many other bands as well, like you can really get in there and learn about history. In fact, I wouldn't be a lawyer if it wasn't for punk rock. Like, like literally I opened up my brain because of punk rock and because of my obsession with the dead Kennedys. And that anger made me want to become a better person. It made me want to learn. And by learning, I am becoming a happier person. There are other branches of punk rock that are, you know, just kind of more playful, right? Like no mm -hmm. effects. Like a lot of their songs are just funny. It's a, it's a funny band. Like they put out some funny songs. I mean, one thing that kind of ties all of punk rock together is that, you know, punk songs all have distinctive musical features. It's a quick, simple tempo and basic chord progressions. But at the end of the day, punk rock is an attitude and you cannot divorce anger from that attitude. So here's my question to you three philosophers. Two questions. Number one, what does philosophy tell us about anger? And number two, would Seneca be a punk rock lover or a hater? <laughs> Can I answer the second one? Um, Please. Yeah, with Seneca, I'm going I'm to say both. Seneca's charge was to eradicate emotions like anger. Yes. Except when guided by reason. So I, I think there's this sort of narrow range of punk rock that, you know, this sort of rational response to things, maybe the difference between the Clash and the Sex Pistols or some such, where I think that Seneca would be fully on board with that, but he wouldn't fully be on board with the just screaming, yelling, primal, angry punk rock. I mean, that just runs afoul of stoicism. Even if you needed to scream and yell in order to find peace in your life, like, like what? sometimes people just need to listen to some punk rock, get it out of their systems, and then they can be mellow. Thoughts about that? That, that would count as guided by reason for me, I think. Okay. I think that's, that's fine. So just since we're talking about the dead Kennedys, right, you've got the Nazi punks F off. I, I think yes. Seneca would look at the Nazi punks and just see them there screaming and angry and and think that there's nothing rational going on there and that they would all be better off to change their ways, to live more stoically. But that wouldn't necessarily apply to the scenario that you just described, where the letting off of the steam is a good response to things that you maybe don't have any sort of control over and can maybe use that to motivate you to do what you can to have control over those things, whether it be changing the government or just your particular circumstances. Okay, so since we're going back to the ancient Greeks then, what is the, let's use Aristotle, the idea of good is that which achieves its aim. So what is the difference between good punk rock and let's say bad punk rock? And I don't know, actually, and Rudy, I don't know, that was a good question about anger and philosophy because a lot of philosophers have ignored the emotions. They've just put them to the side and everything is about reason, reason. So I'm like going through my head. It's only been recently in like the last hundred years where people have addressed in philosophy, it seems like the emotions in a real meaningful way, but I can't really, um, nothing's coming to mind. But now I'm thinking, wait a minute, what is the difference between bad punk rock and good punk rock? So then what well, is the aim of punk rock? 
Yeah, I mean, if, if you do it on, you know, given the criteria you just applied, you'd have to look at the particular aim, right? So the aim of the Sex Pistols was broad social change, anarchy, the change in government. The aim of the clash, I take it, was to get people to understand certain circumstances that were bad and, you know, on a more micro level and do things to change those things. The aim of other bands might just be to get people to dance, blow off some steam. So there would be instances of good and bad, like I said, given the criteria that you've provided within each of those things. I mean, it would, it would be relative to the intentions or goals of the band, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't carve it up that way myself. The way I'd sort of be inclined to distinguish good punk rock and, and bad punk rock, you know, things can be good for a lot of different reasons, but it should have some of the um, sort of, you know, what Prince was calling the essential properties, that you want the music to have a kind of authenticity. And there are other virtues it could have. It could be DIY punk rock, which is better than punk rock coming from a studio. But more importantly, the music should be catchy. It should be danceable. The lyrics should be provocative, right? And some combination of those things strikes me as what distinguishes good from bad punk rock. There's a, a lot of punk rock that just seems like it's copying other punk rock. And so even if it manages to have some of those qualities, it lacks a kind of freshness or novelness. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why the Ramones were so great. You know, they're not the best players. They're not the best singers. Their lyrics are downright stupid. <laughs> Nobody had heard anything like that before. And it was really energizing. It was fun. Yeah, it's just, I'm just thinking about the distinction between now what I'm learning about punk rock and some pop music today that is glorifying wealth and bragging about wealth and that punk rock is just so counter to that narrative yeah Yeah. that's a good that's a great segue into my next question and this is pervasive throughout this discussion i gotta ask is there a philosophical approach to quote unquote selling out or put another way if we all have to make money to live which we do how can we remain authentic but put food on the table and not become another Sugar Ray pumping out fly? Or is that okay too? I'm curious, like what is the philosophical approach to, hey look, we all gotta eat. I mean, part of it can just be like having your priorities in the right space. I think everybody would agree there are ways to make money to put food on the table, as you might say, that are fall within the legal limits of what the law allows, but are sort of morally you might not be joining the mafia or anything, or you might not be doing anything super terrible. They're sort of morally repugnant. And I think maybe the punk rocker just has a broader view of those things that considers that a broader set of things than other people would. So yeah, you still got to make money, but you should also keep authenticity as a prime uh, sort of factor in what you do in order to make that money. They consider a broader set of things to be inauthentic than most people. In principle, they're onto something. You shouldn't just do anything to make money. Rudy, I'd love to know, since you have played punk rock, you love punk rock, were there any essays in this collection where you were like, oh, I hadn't thought about X this way? Oh, God, yeah, but I don't even want to admit to it. Like, like I, I, can't, I can't even believe, I mean, there's so many essays. I mean, this book is just absolutely kick-ass. But the one essay that really pissed me off, and oh. I'll explain, and I'll explain why, I can't believe this. I mean, I, I just I can't believe that this essay made me feel the way that it did. And you want to know what it's called? You guys will never guess. Why Sting is more oh, yeah. punk than you. Oh. <laughs> oh my God. Did this one drive me crazy? Because for my whole, most of my life, I've had this disdain for Sting, notwithstanding the fact 
that he's in one of my favorite films of all time. He's in Quadrophenia. He plays a great role in there. And he's the ace, right? He's a, yeah, he's ace. Yeah, he's yeah. Great, great, fantastic. And he's a great actor. I'm a bass player. Sting's one of the greatest bass players of all time. But there's something about Sting that has always pissed me off, which makes me think that I'm a true punk rocker. And this essay actually made it a, what a beautiful essay because towards the end of it, I was really upset. I mean, basically, the whole point of the essay is sure, you can just play punk rock because if you try to branch out of playing punk rock, the movement will bring you down. They give examples of TSOL. The reason why I keep bringing up Fly and Sugar Ray is because they were brought up a lot in this essay, and it's all about turning professional, making money, actually advancing musically. And in the end, they basically said, look, the essence of being a punk rocker is being genuine to yourself, true to yourself, advancement of yourself, accepting of yourself. Whereas all of these other bands that tried to branch out and that were beaten up by the movement, you know, and they said, okay, fine, we'll just play the same old, you know, tracks and the with the same old temple and the same old thing they're not really punk because they were they were crowd beaten into submission whereas sting was like forget this man i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do and that is truly the essence of punk rock another thing about that essay that i, that, that I remember reading i thought was pretty funny is like yeah i think punk is is like bigoted towards the truly handsome that's not fair <laughs> <laughs> Not, not that that's a problem that I've had to deal with, but I'm just saying that, that like, you know, if you are truly good looking, it's like people are, you know, people in the punk movement are going to be a little bit more weary of you because even there are plenty of like attractive people who have gotten famous in punk, but like the sort of natural way to go about it is like to dress down, you know, unkempt hair, these sorts of things. And that's a weird result of like people trained to be, being authentic, but end up doing like the exact opposite. Yeah, I've always considered myself authentic in my own ways because I, I never had a mohawk. I mean, I went to Servite High School, right, where you had to have your hair kind of perfect. I don't, I don't have any piercings. You weren't allowed piercings. I don't have, I don't wear leather or any bondage type stuff. I just pretty much was myself, and I always felt like that truly was the essence of punk rock. I never wore the quote unquote uniform, right? I didn't put my hair in a mohawk. I didn't wear spiky things. I just wore whatever I wanted to, and then just kind of embellished in feeling good about the about about my anger, you know, whatever I would be angry about, so long as it was reasoned, I felt like punk said it was okay to do that. The other thing I really am truly passionate about punk rock was I never had a music lesson in my life. Never. My parents, you know, I joke around. I, I throw my parents under the bus a lot these days. The only thing my parents taught me was poker, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, but not good enough to become a rich off of it, but never had a music lesson. All of a sudden, my best friend's from high school, they get a guitar and they say, hey, dude, we need a bass player. So, I, you know, I'm working at McDonald's at the time. I save up my money. There's a pawn shop next door. I go, I buy a bass. Within three weeks, I'm in, I'm in two punk rock bands. And I just went all into it. One of the greatest things about punk rock is if you want to do it, it's a low bar for entry, right? But you're not really going to advance individually musically unless you really put the time in and you, and you you take the lessons and everything. But I love the low bar of entry aspect of punk rock. Whereas a lot of other branches of music, you just can't do it. And and I think that's I think that's truly the big, you know, net that punk rock kind of casts. Like, hey, look, as long as it's as long as you play it fast, hard, and um, and you sound a little bit pissed off. You can you can enter into the club, but you know no posers allowed. So 
I, you know, that was my kind of entry into punk rock. And I've written my own essays about what punk rock means to me. And, and it really is one of the most important things of my life. And the fact that you guys put out this book, I truly hope that people read this book, read these essays and go, oh, that's why that 46 year old guy still talks about punk rock <laughs> with this, with this passion. Like, no, he's not some like nostalgic loser. There actually is some essence to punk rock. And, you know, I want to learn more about it. So I think your book is truly, truly helpful for the movement. And I thank you from the bottom of my punk rock heart for putting this book together. Oh, wow. Thanks so much. That, that, that means a ton. Absolutely. And we feel fortunate as well. Uh, I, I always say that one of the one of the most fun things about putting these books together is, you know, when we first start brainstorming the idea, like maybe we could do a book about X. Like we might like brainstorm a list of possible chapters. Oh, I bet we could get a chapter about this, but we could get a chapter about that. But then as the, the submissions start coming in, people submit a chapter idea to us before we say, like, go ahead and write your chapter especially with this book more than other books, like all these chapter ideas started coming in like, oh yeah, I never really thought about that. That would that would make a great chapter. And so we feel like we're kind of on this ride as well, that we get to um, be the benefactor of all of our authors who have made these really interesting little vignettes into punk that we get to enjoy and think hard about something that we love so much. So uh, we're right along there with you. We accepted more papers than we usually do and kind of were pressing up against our publishers you know, upper limit word count because there were just so many things that we didn't want to say no to. This is terrific, guys. I just got to ask, what's the next book for you two? <laughs> when are you coming on again? What's the next one? Well, Richard? The the post-punk book is... Um, post-punk, yes! Yes! Yeah, it's, yes! It's, it's done. Mostly done anyway. We've We've sent it off to the publisher and then there'll be some page proofs and all of that. And I don't know when that's going to come out. Two or three months or four or five months somewhere however long it takes him to get to it. And then um, Josh has been working for quite a while on uh, Back to the Future book. What is it, the 25th anniversary or? Yeah. Oh, no. The four, so 2025 is the 40th, 40th anniversary of the original film. And so I've been pressing really hard and then we finally got the green light on that. That probably won't come out for another year, year and a year half. And a half or, yeah. yeah, probably. Yeah. So, but uh, we're, we just sent out a call for abstracts for Back to the Future and Philosophy. Oh. We're excited about that one for sure. Oh, that's Love awesome. it, guys. I, I'm particularly happy about the post-punk. This Saturday, I'm going to the one-of-a-kind Darker Waves Festival. If you search Darker Waves, it's literally practically like all of like the post-punk bands out there. And, and some punk bands. X is going to be there. A whole bunch of classics. The Chameleons are going to be there. I can't wait to read the post-punk book. You guys are definitely coming back on. You, you know that, right? right? Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, we're always, always happy to. Absolutely. It's awesome. Yes. Thank you guys very, Great very much. Yep, really, nice really love this. Great work again. Yeah, thank you for the work you do. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. And you can find us on Instagram. Take a screenshot of this episode or your favorite episode and tag us. Good is in the Details Pod. We're also on Facebook, Good is in the Details Pod. And if you'd like to get in touch, if you'd like to sponsor our show or pitch an idea, Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. You can also go to our Patreon for extra content and to get a shout out from us. Patreon.com slash good is in the details. Good is in the details is sponsored by avonmoreinc.com. 
This is the perfect time to get that perfect gift for your friend or family member who loves to play bridge. AvonmoreInc.com has everything you need for your next bridge party. Coasters, tallies, napkins. Go to AvonmoreInc.com and let them know that good is in the details sent you. Okay, until next time. Bye.